Bud Light presents Real Men of Genius. Real Men of Genius. Today we salute you, Mr. Paranoid of the Ocean Guy. Mr. Paranoid of the Ocean Guy. Windsurfing, parasailing, bodyboarding. Not you. You prefer activities like flailing, shivering, and whimpering. Please don't judge me. Bravely you step into the water. One wrong move, and you could be pinched to death by a hermit crab. Tell my wife I love her. Was that a piece of seaweed that brushed against your leg? Or a giant man-eating eel? Oh. So crack open an ice cold Bud Light, oh swimmerous minimus. Because someone has to man those shallow waters. And that someone is you. Mr. Paranoid of the Earth. Bud Light Beer, Anheuser Bush, Cartersville, Georgia. <laughs> you know, uh, Mud uh, had uh, called me. Truth be told, I never really thought. I did often wonder how many black pitchers there were in, in Major League history. Um, because when I started out in the minor leagues in 1975, uh, there were only two in our whole system. That was me and uh, Al Downing at the major league level. Um, I remember Rudy May with the Jim Bibby um, was still pitching at that time, and, and uh, J.R. Richard and a, and a few others. Um, and so when he told me that there was this uh, unique club of black pitchers that had won 20 games, uh me if I would like to be a part of it. He told me what the plan was for the group. Um, you know, immediately um, I, I said yes, and um, it, it really got got me to thinking how huge an honor that is um, to be a part of a fraternity um, that at that time uh, only included uh, eight, uh, twelve at that time uh, when I when I when I joined. Um, and so it was just a huge honor, um, and it did provoke thought about um, the guys, you know, before me uh, that had won 20. And, um, and um, so needless to say, um, I was the newest group, newest, newest piece of the group. Um, and then we had our first meeting, um, I believe it was at Mud's Golf Tournament, um, is when we all met uh, for the first time. And um, just being in the room, I was already in awe of Bob Gibson um, and had had an opportunity to meet him on, on a few occasions. And so being in the room with all of the living black aces uh, at that time um, was just, it, it was an unbelievable feel. Carolina, the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network proudly presents 
Backwards K Pod. And now, here's the host of the show, Jake Robinson. Good moment, baseball universe. What is up? Once the kid back is the incredible, the pod animal, Jake the Snake Robinson. From the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network, I'm coming out of Pauly's Island, South Carolina. Half man, half podcast machine. Back in the Captain Kirk chair, seals down, boots on, off. Prepare to engage on this week's digital audio program that I call Backwards K Pop, where we collect ball players and their stories. What's good, you cement freaks? What's cracking? Welcome to my lair, man. The Robinson Gearing Studio Complex for another week of baseball introspection as our BKP freight train continues to roll on. We've now covered over 150 years of history of the national pastime from Moses Fleetwood Walker all the way up to Shohei Otani. And now I'm continuing to bridge the gap in between with all the rich nooks and crannies of ballplayers, personalities, stadiums, pop culture that the game has had to offer to our still young country. My goal in life is to do my part, spread the gospel of baseball around the globe, and thankfully... I have the greatest, most loyal fan base a baseball podcaster could ever ask for. And because of the love and loyalty that you have shown me through the years, I am motivated and determined to accomplish these goals before I draw my last breath on this earth and come running out of that cornfield with uh, 22-year-old legs again. So, thank you. It's really not about me doing a service for you. It is you guys and your love for the game and this show. That is of service to me. Our connection with one another has given me the resolve to put myself out there and get her done. Hello, everybody. I'm Jake the Snake Robinson on a gorgeous day down here in beautiful God's country, Pauly's Island, South Kagalaki. I got the studio wide open today. I got the smell of the salt coming off the Atlantic Ocean wafting on my deck. The sun is hot. And the moonshine is cold, folks. I got, you know, I got a couple jars of liquor here. Let me see what I got. I got, I got a little bit of hazelnut rum, some apple rye liquor, little backwoods uh, schnapps here. All this made in the backwoods. Real, 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 real shit here. And, you know, I'm going to do a couple shots, talk some baseball with you guys. All you newbies here for the first time, welcome, welcome, welcome. Come on in, open your kimono, make yourself comfortable. Nobody here is going to judge. This is the dojo of love, baby. The house of all things seems. And you're amongst friends here. And this week is a big one, folks. I'm going to keep the pregame chatter to a bare minimum. Let's get right after it. The catcher looks ready to throw down. So I'm calling all aboard. As I will be loading up our time travel choo-choo and going back to 2006 where former pitching legend Jim Mudcat Grant would give creative birth to the most exclusive baseball group in the game by celebrating a history of players whose accomplishments are linked together by the game's past as well as the future of baseball, wherever that will end up. And the truth is... 
Well, we got more ground to cover than Willie playing center field at Polo Grounds this week. I, I have a schedule to keep, folks. These wormholes are a little unstable if you run late. We're going to traverse baseball space and time. We're going to run through Brooklyn, New York in the 50s, spend some time in North Chicago, St. Louis, the Bay Area, Queens, the Bronx, and finish it up in Tampa. Uh, this week, folks, we're going to break down the Black Aces of Baseball. And there are only three requirements for inclusion into the now 15-member group. Number one, you have to be African-American. Number two, you have to have pitched in the major leagues. And last but not least, you have to have had a 20-game or more winning season in the majors. And while we're on this trip, making this uh, dive into, you know, these... uh, different dimensions here, I feel the need to address something that, that kind of bothers me when I hear it said, like, it's it's the Bible or something. This notion that the stat win has zero values now. Like, all of a sudden, guys that won 20 games in a season, they, well, you know, they didn't really do anything special. Guys like Bill James and Brian Kenny, you know, they say it, and it just gets accepted as fact. And look, I love both of those guys, but they're not the pontiffs of the seams. And it's always the same argument. Baseball is a team sport. Pitchers' wins are reliant on what the players around them do. la di da fucking da And then that person would cherry-pick the arguments with a guy like, you know, Jacob DeGrom, who was an absolute anomaly with all his 2-1-1-0-nothing one, one, losses. Like, that guy is the norm for the average starting pitcher who wins 20 games. He is not. And it certainly doesn't mean that we paint the whole stat irrelevant because there are hard luck pitchers of that ilk. Now, look, I want to be perfectly clear. I never thought that the Cy Young or any pitching award should be based on win-loss records. That goes all the way back to Dave Stewart winning 20-plus games four years in a row without sniffing the AL Cy Young in any of those years. And that was really when I began to dig into the stats outside of the way that I had always thought about things. But to totally disavow the win as an absolute meaningless stat is absurd to me. I've never seen a pitcher who won 300 games who wasn't among the elites in the game. I've never seen a pitcher who won 250 games in this league who wasn't on that second tier and wasn't worth looking at for for housing in Cooperstown. I mean, where does it stop? Do saves have zero value since it's a team sport and you have guys around you? Is Mariano Rivera the greatest closer in the history of the game, or is it a result for playing on some epic Yankees teams? You tell me, which came first, the chicken or the fucking egg? But you can't have it both ways. Hell, maybe we just throw anyone out there on the bump and it won't matter. The team will go out and get wins because it's all relying on the guys around the pitcher. Well, here's how I look at it. I would rather have Greg Maddox, Jim Palmer, Tom Seaver, Randy Johnson, or in today's vernacular, Spencer Strider, Shane McClanahan, whoever. I'd rather rather have those guys on the mound in high leverage, late inning games than anything I have in the bully. That's how dudes stack W's, and that's how teams move up in the standings. Now... My opponents will say, well, the bullpens are major components now, and starters do not get enough innings to win 20. Well, like anything in life, there, there is some truth to that statement, with a sliver of secondhand myth 
Yes, the bullies are integral pieces. In some ways, that's a reflection of the diminishing pool of elite starters in the game now. Pitching staffs as a whole have become more specialized than ever before. They've become more like chess pieces than baseball players. For example, my Orioles just swept the Royals. And get this, it was the first win by the Orioles without either using AO Rookie of the Year candidate, setup man, Yenier Cano, or closer, Felix Batista. It's the first time all year that any that any time the Orioles won that they didn't use those guys. And they did in back-to-back days. But that is the first time. It's, what is it? It's May. And that, my friends, is a result of not having that top-of-the-rotation 20-win beast that can eat up innings. Give the bully a rest, win when you don't have your best stuff, and absolutely dominate when you're on. Deal with those pressurized late innings. That is a 20-game winner, folks. That's a fucking ace. That, and what the Orioles are playing now, to me, is a dangerous game of baseball roulette. You know, come October. Because here's the thing. Okay. Uh, Jim Palmer was a 20-game winner for the Orioles. I'd rather have Jim Palmer. Look, my bullpen is pretty good this year. I'm not going to lie to you. You know, we got a couple holes in it, just like any other bullpen, but they're pretty fucking rock solid. Well, I'm telling you right now, folks, I'd rather have Jim Palmer in the game in the 7th and 8th inning than anything I got in my bullpen. Because I know he's going to come through, and that's how dudes win 20 games. And you can't tell me that the win is irrelevant. It is not. And yes, baseball's a team sport. The Mets never scored for DeGrom. Fair enough. That makes his 84 wins weighted even more in his favor. Same with Steve Carlson when he won 27 games for a god-awful filthy team that lost two out of every three fucking games. And I, you know, I don't want to go on and on. The win is not a meaningless stat. Go tell the Japanese team that won the 2023 WBC uh, that, you know, it's a, it's, it's, it's a meaningless stat. They own the pitcher's stat box and they dominated the tourney not losing once. Wins are a stat that I now read in conjunction with FIP. And runs aloud per nine. That's all. You just have to read it differently. They may not mean what they used to. But for me, the win is still relevant. Baseball is certainly a team sport. But I played behind pitchers that I knew no matter what happened today, we're going to win. Like, no fucking doubt about it. If this dude gives up five in the first inning, we're still going to win. Or he'll take the L. But we're probably going to come back and win if he keeps us right there. And one more thing. Don't let anyone tell you no one wins 20 games anymore. That's just lazy. Again, people mimic what they hear. It fits our narrative, and we roll with it. The last four years have been 24, 20-game winners. Verlander, he also just missed it last year, going 18-4 and in 28 starts. Garrett Cole, Kyle Wright, and Julio Arias. Right now, you got Nathan Ivaldi, Shane McClanahan, or of course, to win 20. Knock on wood. Clayton Kershaw, Merrill Kelly, Zach Eflin, they're keeping up the pace as well. So, guys still do it. Not like they used to, but they still do it. And I'll take that 20-win ace in the 7th, 8th inning, high-pressure, high-leverage situations over anything I got in the Orioles bullpen, and it's pretty fucking good. Okay, so with that said, Let's dig into this week's fascinating topic. Now, I want you to know 
There are currently 15 pitchers in one of the baseball's uh, most exclusive fraternities here. One player already has a bio in here. Many of the others are sure to follow in our collection here at BKP, where we collect ballplayers in their stories. So, with that being said, these won't be in-depth bios like you're used to me spitting to you guys. If I did it that way, we'd be in for, you know, five hours. And even if I get sick of my, uh, you know, even I get sick of myself after about an hour or so. So, we're going to hit these boom, boom, boom. I'm going to give you some background deets. But it'll mostly just deal with the particular seasons that deal with our topic. And here we are, pulling up at one of Mudcat Grant's favorite golf charities. He used to pull this off during the offseason. And he has just written a book. And he would love to get the thoughts from the surviving men that he wrote about. So they've all been invited to the charity. At this time, there are 12 men in the book that he highlighted. And all the surviving members are waiting in anticipation to hear from their beloved brother, Mudcat. As the room fills up with some of the finest group of pitchers to ever sit in one room outside of Cooperstown, Mudcat reveals an idea that's been bouncing around in his head for a couple years. He reminded the men that after baseball was integrated, Teams that drafted black pitchers from the Negro Leagues and the Sandlots of America were in the habit of converting them into position players as they went to the major leagues. The thought was that while these black players are athletic and fast and bring a whole new exciting style to the major league brand, most GMs and ball club owners had reservations about putting a black man at a position where decision-making and intelligence Overrode athleticism. A position where the games, you know, could be flipped quick, fast, and a hurry based on your decision making and execution. In Grant's mind, this group of men he had now sitting in front of him, listening intently, are a special group who have shared many of human life experiences amongst each other as brothers, some good, some bad. But each team, each man, was one of only 12 people on the planet to achieve their accomplishment. Mudcat went on to explain the enormity of their place in the history of not only black baseball, but baseball. In the history of the game as a whole, he wanted the boys to accept the honor of being a black ace. It is to be a brotherhood of legacy, a fraternity that celebrates the history of the rarest of all baseball breeds the African-American Major League Pitcher. It is a club designed to promote thought, and it is meant to inspire future black pitchers to try and make it into the group. After Mudcat's plea for brotherly solidarity, the other men, many with tears after hearing Grant's uh, passionate pitch, to a man they agreed, of course. That, that old Mudcat was on to something special here. And from what I can tell... None of these guys protested Grant's offer. Bob Gibson didn't stand up and go, uh, you know, uh, I think wins are irrelevant, Mudcat. I just showed up. You know, they, the team won around me. I really had nothing to do with winning or losing on any given day. It was all them. 
Not one pitcher did that because they're actually Major League Baseball pitchers who know how hard it is to be consistent enough to win fucking 20 games in a year. They actually know. Like, Bill James and Brian Kennedy do not. Remember that, folks. That's the fucking equalizer right here. And with that, the most exclusive 12-man brotherhood was formed, and there have been three more editions since the book came out. So, let's load up this time travel choo-choo again. And go to Brooklyn, New York, 1957, where the first black ace is set to put his stamp on the baseball universe forever. We're talking Brooklyn Dodgers pitcher Don Newcomb, the first of the black aces. And Mr. Newcomb is a highly decorated black ace, a three-star general, meaning he won at least 20 games in his career three times. In 1951, he goes 20 and 9 with a 3.28 ERA. 1955, 20 and 5 with a 3.20 ERA. And 1956, he goes 27 and 7 with a 3.06 ERA. Don was one of the first black players in the sport, following Jackie to the show in 1949 for the Dodgers. He had a career win-loss record of 149 and 90, making his 614 winning percentage the 56th best winning percentage in the game's history, and the third best among his black aces brothers, behind only David Price and Doc Gooden. Before joining the Dodgers, Newt played for the Newark Eagles for the Negro Leagues in 1944 and 1945. After joining Brooklyn, he pitched four more years in Branch Rickey's farm system, going 52-18. and 18. His Major League Baseball debut was a shutout to the Cincinnati Reds in 1949. He goes 17-8 and eight as a rookie. He edges out pitcher, uh, Preacher Rose's 15-6 record for the most wins on the staff and earning him the 1949 National League Rookie of the Year. He is still the only player in baseball history to win the Rookie of the Year, Cy Young, and MVP award. He missed two years of baseball, fulfilling his military obligations. Without him, the 1953 Brooklyn Dodgers won 105 games. So I'm thinking with him, they may have become one of the, you know, three or four winningest teams in the game system. And also may have prevented that juggernaut Yankees team from beating him in the World Series that year. After leaving the Dodgers at the 1958 season, Newcomb plays for the Reds. His presence in the Queen City gives the Reds three top flight black ball players and Veda Pinson, Frank Robinson, and Don Newcomb. He is one of the greatest hitting pitchers of all time with a 271 batting average and a 338 OBP in 878 at bats. In 1955, he slugged seven dogs. He sports a 6.32 slugging percentage, which is only, uh, which is second only to Willie Mays that year. He's the only one that had a higher OBP. So yes, it's a team game, and Nuke's arm and bat is as valuable as any player on the fucking field to get wins. And he is on a shorter lease than his white comp counterparts here, proving once and for all that black wins matter, folks. 
Don Nuka, big scratch softball, had a 12-year career with the Dodgers and Reds, four-time NL All-Star, 1949 Rookie of the Year, 1956 NL Cy Young, 1956 NL MVP, three-star general of the Black Aces, 20-plus wins in 1951, 55, and 56. His 24 shutouts tie him for third among his Black Aces brothers, along with Al Downing and Dwight Gooden, and behind only Bob Gibson and Ferguson Jenkins. And by the blow, I'm sorry. His 114 OBP plus and ranks fourth among the Aces. His 1.21 career whip is fourth, and his 38.7 war is seventh in the fraternity. So, there you have it. Don Newcomb, Nuke, he is and always will be still number one, baby. Laying the footsteps for the amazing journeys walked by black pitchers throughout the history of the game. Okay, folks. So, no rest for the fucking weary. Let's get back on the time travel, choo-choo. And set our destination... For San Francisco, 1959, our first trip today to the Bay Area of California, but I'm telling you right now, it's not going to be the last. Our second player to join the Black Aces is Toothpick Sam Jones, six foot four right hand pitcher from Stewartsville, Ohio, and as someone who has only seen Grady video of Sad Sam's work. When I look at his raw stats, I see a big right-handed pitcher with a big arm, as evidenced by the fact uh, that 19.7 of his outs came via the strikeout, which the fourth-highest percentage of the fraternity after David Price, J.R. Richard, and C.C. Sabathia. He also had an outs... You know, an astounding 11.9% walk rate of all the battles he faced. So, think uh, you know, young Nolan Ryan. Three times he led the NL in both strikeouts and walks in the same season. 1955, 1956, and 1958. And in fact, he narrowly misses this dubious distinction in 1959 when he earns his Black Aces wings going 21-16 and 16 with a 2.83 ERA. He led the NL in walks allowed with 199, and he came in second in strikeouts with 209 and 270 innings pitched. In 1955, while playing for the Cubs, toothpick, he becomes the first African-American pitcher to throw a no-hitter in the major leagues. He earned that toothpick moniker due to his penchant for chewing on flat wooden toothpicks. He was also called Sam, uh, Sad Sam Jones for his mournful facial expressions and in memory of an earlier Sad Sam Jones that played in the legal leagues. In a pro career that spanned over 21 years, Sad Sam cut his teeth in the Negro Leagues during the 1947 and 1948 campaigns. With Jackie smashing the color line, Jones played semi-pro ball in the Southern Minnesota League in 1949 before signing on with the Cleveland Indians. After failing to crack that tri-rotation, he finally gets a chance with the Cubs, who traded Ralph Kiner for him. From 1955 to 1962, he played eight full seasons and parts of four others. His biggest years came with the Cardinals and the Giants from 1957 to 1960. And in relation to wins, I like to look at runs allowed per nine 
where he has an average of 4.19 a game. That's not terrible. I like to see that no higher than four and a quarter a game. So, despite the walks, he's giving his team a chance. But, he's telling that red line for me. That's uh, uh, 4.19 runs against per nine. That's a 12th best mark among his Black Aces brothers. 14-year Major League Baseball career, San Francisco, St. Louis, the Cubs, Tribe, the Orioles, and Tigers. Two-time All-Star, NL ERA leader in 1959 with that sterling 2.83 that I mentioned earlier. The 27 wins that year, that put Jones in the prestigious club. Uh, And they were the most in the National League in 1959. Three-time NL strikeout leader, 1955, 1956, and 1958. Two good-team win seasons, 1959 and 1960. So, there we have it, folks. The second black ace, Sam Toothpick Jones. Okay. So, time is money and money is time, folks. Let's get this train back. Catch this wormhole. Head on out to St. Louis, 1965. We're going to check in on the most respected, loved, and feared pitcher of all the Black Aces, five-star general Bob Gibson. And I have to tell you, uh, keeping it transparent here, there is a certainly a Bob Gibson PK, BKP extravaganza coming in November. So I'm not going to get too bogged down in his life and story. And I'll focus more on his exploits that propelled him into membership of the exclusive Black Aces. He was, in many ways, the last of his breed. An intelligent, durable pitcher in conjunction with a precision-guided missile launcher for an arm. With the steely focus and fearlessness to intimidate batters. He was also, in many ways... The first of his breed, the new modern-day strikeout power pitcher who threw 20 or more complete games seven times. And where to begin? I mean, god damn. Gibby officially joined the Aces in 1965, going 20-12 with a 3.07 ERA. He earns his second star in 1966, 21-12 with a 3.44 ERA. In 1968... He has one of the most dominating pitching seasons in the modern game with a 21, 22 point, 22 and 9 record and a 1.12 ERA that is still the benchmark for earned run averages in the game's history. He threw 13 shutouts that year. And for good measure in 1969, Gibby goes 20-13. And in 1970, 23 and 7 to finish up a stretch of five 20 win seasons in six years. His ERA plus of 127 is the highest of all the aces, as is his career war of 88.1. His 2.91 ERA, 56 shutouts, runs allowed per nine at 3.29. Now, I'm sure there were days when the offense had to pick up Gibby here and there, but 3.29 runs allowed per nine is pretty fucking beast. Gibby is leading the way to the majority of those Cardinal wins. His FIP is 2.89, I mean 2.89, folks, which puts him second behind only J.R. Richard, who absolutely idolized Gibson. His 1.19 whip is the third best posted by a black ace behind Fergie Jenkins and David Price. 
His 7.2 Ks per nine is the fifth among his brothers behind Price, JRCC, and Toothpick. 19.4% of the outs he recorded were of the strikeout variety, which is the sixth highest mark in the fraternity. Batters, they slashed the lowly 228, 297, 325 against him, which is the second stingiest slash against uh, versus all the aces except J.R. Richard. And on a sidebar, in relation to wins, Gibby won seven consecutive World Series games in 1964, 67, and 68. And I would have loved to see one of these dudes tell Mr. Gibson his wins are irrelevant. See how that fucking works out for you, bud. Again, I have a Gibby bod coming in a few months. I'm going to do a deep dive into that warrior's life and career. Bob Gibson, the third and arguably the greatest of all the black aces. Five-star general, 17-year career. All spent with the Cardinals. Six-time NL All-Star, 1968 NL MVP, two-time World Series champion, nine-time NL Gold Glove winner, four times led the league in shutouts. His 3,117 strikeouts is the 16th most in baseball and the second most among the Black Aces with only Fergie striking out more. He and Jenkins are the two Hall of Famers amongst this crew. I mean, what can you say about Bob Gibson, right? I mean, just a beast. I can't wait to do his show. I don't want to give too much away here. Uh, we got a schedule to keep here. Uh, just keep your eyes out. Bob Gibson is coming very, very soon. Okay, so from here, we're going to head out to Minnesota. Don't you know? Hey there, hi there, ho there. 1965, where Mudcat Grant has made history by becoming the first African-American pitcher to win 20 games in the American League. So, 1965, the same year, Bob Gibson would break the 20-win threshold, and he would later coin the name the Black Aces as a way to cherish the journey as well as celebrate the African-American pitcher. And these fellas should be recognized, remembered for posterity, and for future state. Baseball should always try to preserve the history. I think the other sports, you know, they, they don't play the history like baseball. You, you don't want these guys to go forgotten. Like, the first black player to play quarterback in the NFL. Anyone? 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 It's important to preserve the past when it comes to baseball. By the way, the first black quarterback in the NFL was? Anyone? Anyone? That would be Willie Thrower out of Michigan State for George Hallis and the Chicago Bears. Drove the ball 70 yards before Hallis takes him out to let George Blandy get the fucking TD. But look, that's a whole other start for a whole other type of pod. Most people don't know that fucking answer. That's a goddamn piss poor job by the NFL. But I digress. From 1958 to 1964, Mudcat Grant was an extremely talented pitcher who could never seem to reach a ceiling. And that would all change in 1965 when the right-handed pitcher went 21-7 and with a 3.30 ERA to lead us Twinkies to an AL pennant. And even though that team would fall to the Dodgers for the world titles uh, that year, it, 
He wasn't a power arm pitcher. He pitched a contact. That year he led the AL with six shutouts. His career slash against numbers was 248, 311, 391. They're the 10th best within the Black Aces. His 4.0 runs allowed per nine is ninth best in the group. A fantastic pitcher. But his biggest contribution to the game will always be establishing the Black Aces legacy. And speaking of Michigan State, our journey through time and space continues as we head to Motown, Detroit Rock City, 1967. And we're going to take a look at the fifth member to break through and join the Black Aces, Tigers right-handed pitcher, Earl Wilson. And Wilson actually has the distinction of being the first black pitcher for the Boston Red Sox in 1959. I didn't know that. I knew a lot about Pumpsy Green, did not know a lot about Wilson here. On June 26, 1962, he hurls a no-no at the Los Angeles Angels. And like Newcomb and Gibson, Wilson was a hell of a hitter by pitcher standards. He mashed out 35 home runs and 111 RBI and 740 at-bats. He was often used as a pitch hitter, and he was a threat to drop dog anytime he stepped in the box. His 33 career home runs as a pitcher is the post-1960 expansion era record, and it still stands today. Fellow Black Aces, uh, fellow Black Ace and former Cub, I'm sorry, fellow Black Ace, Newcomb, and former Cub, Carlos Zambrano, are second with 24. In 1967, he would go 21-11 with a 3.27 ERA to earn his wings into the exclusive club. Which, by the way, was the most wins by an L pitcher that year. 16.7% of the outs he recorded. They came by the strikeout, which is 11th best among the aces. His 242-313-382 slash against is the ace stingiest of the unit. And his 4.10 runs allowed per nine is 11th best. He led his team to the 1968 World Series Championship over the Cardinals. His 27.6 war accumulated during an 11-year career with the Red Sox and Tigers is the 8th best among the Black Aces pitchers. So, with Earl Wilson in the book with a backwards K next to it, we move on to the 6th member to crack the 20-win bearer. And join the iconic Black Aces. And that brings us to the highest ranking ace. Seven star. General. And Hall of Famer. Ferguson Jenkins. And while Gibby is most assuredly the most dominating of all the Black Aces. Fergie is probably the most established. Even though uh, Jenkins was Canadian, his ancestry has links to American slaves, so Mudcat took creative license and made him a member after his 20 and 13 season with the Cubs in 1968 and a 208 ERA. Six of the next seasons, Jenkins would put up 21 seasons, and in 1974, he became the only black ace to win 20 plus games in both the American and National League when he goes 25 and 12. With a 2.82 ERA for the Texas Rangers. 
And that was in 1974. He was a six foot five tower of power who dispatched batters with zipping letter hot fastballs and a dazzling array of secondary pitches. His 3,192 strikeouts are the 14th most in baseball history and the most among the black aces. 17.3% of his outs were registered by strikeouts, which is the eighth highest percentage among his brothers. He leads the fraternity in wins with 254, 664 games, and a whip of 114. His 84.2 war is second only to Gibson's 89.1. 115 ERA plus, it sits fourth behind Gibby, Price, and CC. 3.28 BIP is third behind JR and Gibson. 3.71 run runs allowed per nine is the fifth best mark in the group. And his 49 shutouts is second on the aces behind only Gibby and his 56. 19-year baseball career with the Cubs, Rangers, Phillies, and Red Sox. Three-time NL All-Star, 1971 NL Cy Young Award, 1974 Comeback Player of the Year, two times led the league in wins, 1971 for the Cubs, and 1974 for the Texas Rangers. NL Strikeout Leader in 1969, four times led the league in shutouts, 1967, 1970, and 71 for the Cubs, and 1974 for the Texas Rangers. In 1981, he is a Inducted into the National Baseball Hall of Fame in Cooperstown, New York. And that is Ferguson Jenkins. And look, I'm going to tell you right now, of course, I got a Ferguson Jenkins pod coming. So I'm not going to dig too much into it. But you can see where he ranks among his black aces fraternity and Look, he's right there with them. I mean, even Bob Gibson, those two are sharing some stats, some leadership right there. So, we're now moving on to 1971. We're going to go out to California. Uh, That year, two left-handed members would join the Vaunted Club. And... The first one is three-star general Vada Blue. He goes 20.8 with a 1.82 ERA for the A's and uh, for the A's and Dodgers pitcher Al Downing, who was mostly remembered for giving up Hank Aaron's historic 715 home run. He goes 29 with a 2.68 ERA. And Vida, whom we lost last month, was a rising star for Oakland. In 1971, with his impressive season, he wins both the AL Cy Young Award as well as league MVP honors. Blue was the youngest pitcher to win the side at the age of 22 until black ace brother Dwight Gooden would win the coveted award in 1985 at the age of 20. On September 21st, 1970, he pitched a no-hitter versus the Twins, and on September 28th, he and three other pitchers combined for a no-hitter against the California Angels. He was the first player to start an all-star game for both leagues, and is still the only pitcher to be credited with a win for both leagues in the all-star game. His rising star was altered and derailed by drug addiction, arrest, and suspensions. Six-time All-Star, 1971 AL MVP, and a Cy Young Award winner. 
winner of three World Series with the Oakland A's in 1972, 1973, and 1974. And he is certainly one of, you know, three or three guys on this list where you're like, you know, wow, what could have been with Vida Blue? I mean, he was surely destined for the Hall of Fame. Now, Al Downing was different in that Vida's game was power-based and Downing was a finesse type with one of the better breaking balls in the history of the game. He came up in the Yankees organization. He was the first African-American starting pitcher for the story franchise and he was dubbed the Black Sandy Kofax. His 217 strikeouts in 1964 it led all of the American League and as the 1960s were winding down, Downing struggled and was traded to the A's after a half season there, he was acquired by the Brewers. He moved on again to L.A. in 1971, and he responded by winning 20 games, leading the NL with five shutouts while being named Comeback Player of the Year. Why the blow? And his 209 career wins, it ranks third among all black aces. His 3.27 ERA is fourth best in the group. His 2,175 strikeouts is fifth best behind Bernie, Gibby, CC, and Doc. His 1.23 whip, it ranks fifth. And his 45.1 war is fifth as well. 17.7 of all outs. At the hands of Al Downing was the result of a strikeout, which is seventh best among his fraternal brothers. His 3.72 runs allowed per nine is the fourth best rate behind Gibby, KR, and Price. And his 21.0 career war, it ranks him 11. So 1971, we have two new members for this exclusive fraternity that Mudcat Grant started called the Black Aces. Well, let's head on out to Houston, Texas. And in 1976, another... You guys know I get a little emotional when I talk about JR. So, in 1976... Another fireballing pitcher would burst on the scene, make his presence felt, and he would be the next hurler to join the Black Aces. And we're talking my great friend, may he rest in peace, James Rodney Richard. And I'm so proud that he was able to achieve Black Aces status. Hard-throwing 6.8 Astros ace was establishing himself as a link to his idol Bob Gibson. At 1976, he goes 20 and 15 with a minuscule 2.75 ERA. Unfortunately, his magnificent career would be cut short by a stroke that he would suffer in the Astrodome just days after starting the 1980 All-Star Game. And folks, I did a show with my good friend JR, so... I'm not going to rehash this story here. If you would like to learn more about my dude and the connection we shared, you can find that on the J.R. Richard Biggest Line in the Valley show available on all podcast platforms, wherever you listen to your pods, or you can visit my website, diamondsnakejigtodpodbean.com to hear any of the pods I have in my Baltimore archives. And even though his career was cut short, J.R. dominated the game at the height of his powers. 
And you know, he's just gonna leave all of us C-Mads wondering what you know what could have been. Just like you know, bottom low, just like Doc could. His slash was 212, 305, 295, which is by far the best of all of his Black Aces brothers. His 3.5 runs allowed for 9, his second best to Owen Gibson. His fifth of 2.86 is 3 tenths better than Gibson. 22.4% of the outs he accumulated came by way of strikeout. Second best in the group behind only David Price. His 3.15 ERA... Also, second to his idol, Gibby. 8.4 strikeouts for 9 is the second best mark in the group behind Price. And his war of 22 is 10th best. And just a fascinating monster of his day. And I highly implore you to check out the biggest line in the fucking valley, J.R. Richard. Check that show out if you haven't heard it. And look, folks... Let's see, how many does that give us here? I kind of lost count here. I think that gives us nine of 15 members that we've touched here. Yeah, I'm looking here now. Nine. So, look, i tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to step out, pay some bills, catch my bearings, do a couple of shots of this rifle liquor I got. Smoke a cig. Map out where we're going from here with our last six members. I'm also going to end the show with three players on the ge- in the game now who could be on the inside track to becoming a member of this aspiring group of pitchers who call themselves the Black Aces. So please, don't go anywhere, Seamheads. I'll be RB before you even fucking know it. Please support our grassroots sponsors who look out for their grassroots baseball podcast show. Sit tight, you freaks. I'll be back to continue to examine the black aces. Executive producer of Backwards K Pond. In Texas, we do everything big. After football and golf, there's probably nothing I love more than going fishing and enjoying a good crawfish board. The only thing I dislike about going fishing is the lingering odor it can leave on your hands afterwards. Well, the Fish and Hand Cleaner is an all-natural liquid soap perfect for overpowering fish and bait odors from your hands. I can't tell you how many times I've eaten steamed crabs, lobster, shrimp, crawfish, and then washed my hands with regular soap, only to touch my eyes half an hour later, and my face begins to melt off due to the damn Cajun no face spice. Well, we also have a hand cleaner, specifically formulated to use after eating shellfish and other seafoods. Perfect for cleaning spicy, smelly hands after a Texas-sized seafood feast. In these cases, don't settle for anything less than a crawfish hand cleaner, a crab hand cleaner, or the fishing hand cleaner. An ingenious trifecta of natural hand soaps developed and owned by a disabled Navy veteran. He and Jake have a true connection, 
as they were boot camp shipmates all the way back in 1989. So he is family, folks. And one thing we do here at the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network is look out for family. So you can support two grassroots companies by two former shipmate Navy vets. Crushing big bowls of shellfish or fishing on the banks of your favorite river while you listen to BKP. Sounds like a great day. You know, in fact, hey, Mom, where are my poles? I'm gone fishing. There's also a buffalo wing hand cleaner in development as we speak. To check all of the incredible products of this great company, you can go to www.crawfishhandcleaner.com or call the home offices at 713-588-0290. That's 713-588-0290 to support the grassroots company that supports your grassroots podcast show. That's crawfishhandcleaner.com or 713-588-0290 to prepare for your summertime shellfish feast or that fishing trip you're planning. Crawfishhandcleaner.com Last time you and I were together doing a conversation with the Yankees, you told a great story. Now, you were being presented the Cy Young Award. You had put together this dazzling season, and and Muttcat Grant was there to present you with the Cy Young Award. And what did he tell you? Still not enough. (laughs) (laughs) Still ain't dead enough, because I think I won 19 games that year, He had been drilling it in my head, you know, since I was 18 years old, that I needed to win 20 games in the big leagues to be a part of this group. And, you know, I just thought, you know, we out on the field. J.R. Richard was there. Mike Norris was there. I thought he was, you know, coming to congratulate me, give me this big, you know, spill and speech. And he was there to tell me that I hadn't accomplished what he had set out for me. So, (laughs) you know, like me pitching with with almost with kind of like his spirit in me the whole time, you know, of trying to win these 20 games and, you know, battling the whole time and, you know, like Dave said, I, I never, I didn't really think about, you know, there wasn't a lot of black pitchers before me because when I was, when I was coming up, it was, it was Stu. It was, you know, my dad, I talked about Vita Blue was a big person that he, you know, he always wanted me to be like, and it was Dwight Gooden. So in my mind, there was all these black pitchers, but it was probably only a few of them. You know what I'm saying? But to me, for me to be able to emulate these guys and these guys pitched th- throughout my team. So. You know, it was it was huge that you know Stu can 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 remember when you know he's pitching in the big leagues and there wasn't that many guys. But to me, as a kid, being able to watch him and and Doc do their things and you know have by the blue on my mind and you know my grandfather was a big Don Newcomb fan, so you know to be able to have these images of these guys and that's just who I thought I was. Every time I took the ball, if I was out in the yard playing with my homies, or even when I was playing in real games. I, you know, I was Dave Stewart. I was, you know, Doc Gooden. I was these guys. So it, it, it's great to be a part of that history and, you know, really kind of live up to what my cat set out for me when I was 18. around. 
Pitchers who have tallied 20 or more wins in a season. We've covered Brooklyn Dodgers pitcher and the first member of the Aces, Don Newcomb. He was followed by Toothpick Jones of the San Francisco Giants. The third member of the cards of the club was Cards legend Bob Gibson. And then Mudcat Grant, who was the first American League black hurler to do the honors. It was Mudcat's brainchild that created the group after writing the book The Black Aces in 2011. Tigers pitcher Earl Wilson joined the club in 1965, going 22-4, followed by both Al Downing and three-star general Vada Blue joining the ranks in 1971. And finally, before I bailed out, we talked about my good friend J.R. Richard, who was struck down in his prime with a career-ending debilitating stroke in 1980, but not before blessing us with his masterpiece 1976 season when he went 21-15 and 15 with a 2.75 ERA to boot. So, that leaves us six members of the fraternity to examine. Chop, chop, time is money. Let's get this train back on track as we now set our time and destination to Oakland, California, 1980, where our second of three athletics is poised to make the jump into the ranks of the Black Aces, and that would be right-handed pitcher Mike Norris of the Oakland A's. Norris played 10 years in the majors, he was runner-up to Orioles pitcher Steve Stone in the 1980 AL Cy Young Award after going 22-9 with a 2.53 ERA. The A's drafted Mike in the 1973 Amateur Baseball Draft. After climbing through the farm system, he reached the majors in 1975. Over the next four years, the talented Norris would only win 11 games total. That would all change in 1980 with the arrival of manager Billy Martin. Martin had the tendency to push his Oakland rotation deep into games, and Norris responded well to the standards set forth by Billy, and he had his career year. Not only did he go 22-9 that year to meet the qualification threshold of the Black Aces, but he also had 24 complete games that season. After his 12-9 season in 1981, Norris develops arm problems and a nasty drug habit. After a two-year layoff, the A's released Norris in 1985. He does make it back to the majors in 1990, going 1-0 with a 3.00 ERA and 14 appearances for his Oakland A's. And during his career, Mike is most remembered for his bright green batting gloves he wore under his glove while on the mound, as well as that magical 1980 season where Billy Martin just basically squeezed every ounce of pitching production he could get out of Norris. Ten-year career with Oakland, 1981 All-Star, two-time gold winner, 
1980 and 1981. And as the 70s are drawing to a close, the 1980s began the dawn of a new era. Modern day African American pitchers uh, were now on the scene as the decade would see three pitchers join as new members to the Black Aces in the 80s. Uh, the first was Norris in 1980. So, for this next trip, let's go out to Queens, New York. Uh, you know, let's see if we can run into uh, the, the greatest rapper of all time that ever lived. Yeah, I'm talking Nas, of course, right? So, we'll go out there and see if we can find Nas. And let's also, uh, let's talk about a little Doc Gooden. So, let's load this train up and get the show on the road. In 1985, that's where we are right now. Uh, the baseball scene is about to be turned upside down with the emergence of a 20-year-old 20, 20 Mets ace, Doc Gooden. And Gooden was signed by the uh, Mets in the first round of the 1982 amateur baseball draft. In his only complete season of minor league ball, he goes 14-9 with 300 strikeouts and 191 innings pitched. He was an immediate sensation at Shea Stadium, leading the NL in strikeouts in his first two campaigns. At 19 years old in 1984, he becomes the youngest player to win the National League Rookie of the Year. He finishes that year going 8-1 with a 1.07 ERA. He would follow that rookie year with a 24-4 record and a 1.53 ERA to win the NLCI and join the Black Aces fraternity. His career after 1985 was full of ups and downs, beset by drugs, injuries, and arrests. Doc, much like Norris and JR, they are prime examples of what could have been. He did win three World Series titles in his career, two with the Yankees, 1998 and 2000, as well as the 1985 Mets title run. Uh, that you know, That's the one that saw the ball get by Buckner in Game 6. And he measures up quite well with the stats of his Black Aces comrades. His 53 war ranks fourth among the Aces behind only Gibby, Berkey, and CeCe. His 3.33 fifth sits atop, uh, well, it sits fourth, Behind J.R. Gibby and Fergie. Runs allowed for nine. He's seventh in the club with 3.85. 19.6% of his putouts were of the strikeout variety, which is fifth among the black aces behind Price, J.R., C.C., and Toothpick. 194 wins is fourth behind Fergie. Both Gibby and C.C., who are tied with the second most at 251, and Bonnet Blue with 209. So, with the 11th member, Doc Good in the books, with a backwards K next to his name, it's time to load up this train and head back to the Bay Area of Oakland to celebrate our third athletics pitcher to be inducted into the Black Aces. As we are about to talk about four-star general Dave Stewart. 
as he's about to close out the 1980s with four consecutive seasons of 20 or more wins for the mighty Oakland A's in the late 1980s. And this is another player I've covered extensively in the 1989 Earthquake Series show. You can go there and check it out. It's personally one of my favorites, and still is a big part of that program. The tenacious right-handed pitching dominated the turn of the decade for his hometown team in a career that lasted 15 seasons. From 1987 to 1990, Stu won at least 20 games in each of those seasons, leading his A's to three consecutive World Series appearances. He was originally drafted by the Dodgers in 1975 as a catching prospect, but was converted to pitching in the minor leagues. In August of 1983, the Dodgers deal smoke to the Texas Rangers for pitcher Rick Honeycutt after his mediocre 1984 season. Uh, he's banished to the bully. His struggles become worse. He has then dealt a filthy where he is hampered by injuries and poor play with the Phillies, and they cut bait in 1986. Stewart is picked up by Oakland, where he initially serves in a bullpen capacity before finally earning a rotation spot in 1987, and the rest is history. 1989 AL All-Star, 1989 World Series MVP, 1990 ALCS MVP, and 1993 ALCS MVP with Toronto. His 26.5 war ranks ninth among the Black Aces. His 566 winning percentage ranks sixth behind Price, Doc, Newt, CC, and JR. And he's the last player mentioned in the book, written by the group creator Mudcat Grant in 2011. So, with Stewart in the books. We're going to keep this train rolling, baby. We got word holes to catch. So, we're going to head on down to South Beach, Miami, Florida, where our third, uh, where third year player Dontrell Willis will become probably the most unlikely member of the Black Aces. The Southpaw, nicknamed D Train was noted for his early success in his career, as well as his unorthodox side-winding mechanics. In 2003, he wins the NL Rookie of the Year Award. As a child, Willis grew up in Alameda, California, rooting for Dave Stewart and the Oakland A's. In 2000, his senior year in high school, he had a .70 ERA, with 111 strikeouts and 70 innings pitched. He initially committed to playing college ball at Arizona State, but the Cubs drafted the Southpaw in the eighth round of the 2000 Amateur Baseball Draft. On March 27th of 02, the Cubs traded to the Marlins. After the trade, Willis struggles early on, but he rebounds and he wins the Marlins Minor League Pitcher of the Year Award in 2003. On May 9th, 2003, Dontrell makes his major league debut versus the Rockies, giving up three earned on seven hits for a no decision. He was named NL Rookie of the Month in June of 03, becoming the first rookie pitcher to win uh, the NL Rookie of the, uh, rookie of the Month since Hideo Nomo in 1985. 95, I'm sorry. By All-Star break, he had a 9-1 record with a 2.08 ERA and 13 starts. And he becomes the second Marlins rookie after Alex Gonzalez in 1999 to go to an All-Star game. In 2005, he starts out the season with back-to-back 
complete game shutouts against the District Nats at Filthy. By the end of April, he's 5-0 with a 1.29 ERA and five starts. And going into the All-Star break, Willis is 13-4 with a 2.39 ERA. He would finish out the season going 9-6 with a 2.31 ERA to attain his place with his Black Aces brothers. He would finish second in signing voting behind Chris Carpenter of the Cards. His 16.8% of strikeouts to putouts is 10th best among the Aces. So, 13 down, 2 to go. Let's load this mother up. Catch this wormhole. We're going to set our sights for the boogie down Bronx, New York City, 2010. Where C.C. Sabathia, I love that dude. I always loved him. I don't care if he was a Yankee. I always was a huge C.C. Sabathia fan. Well, 2010, he's putting the final touches on his season with a 21 and second record with a 3.18 ERA. So finally lumps to the goals that Mudcat Mud Grant had set for him when he was 18 years old. I mean, ever since CC was a teenager, Mudcat was always in CC's ear telling him that he expected to see him in the exclusive Black Aces one day. Even after winning 19 games and the side young in 2009, Grant was quick to humble Sabathia and tell him that he still hadn't accomplished the goal. And I expect to do a CC show at some point, so I won't give you much on the bio, but I will say this. The fact that CC is a member of the support group is great news as he takes the honor serious. And he has become like this black aces gatekeeper in many ways after the loss of Mudcat. CC even has a black aces clothing line and you can find that on eBay. It's some really nice gear. His 62.3 wars, the third highest among the aces behind the two Hall of Famers, Bergie and Gibby. He and Gibby both have 251 wins, second only to Fergie's 284. His 3,093 strikeouts is third behind Fergie and Gibby. He averaged 4.08 runs per nine innings, which is 10th in comparison to all the other aces. And 20.6% of all the putouts he recorded came by strikeout, the third most among the aces behind J.R. Richard, and his 22.4%, and David Price with 23.6%. And if I'm being honest, again, I'm just a huge Sabathia guy. I love his swagger, the slight sideways style he wore his hat, the passion. I always found him to be as competitive as the next guy, but there was no phoniness there, there no Max Scherzer-like pretentiousness where he acts like an asshole because he's amped up for the fucking game. He's very thoughtful with his words, the way he carried himself between the lines. CeCe just fucking gets it, and I, I can't wait for that brother to make the Hall of Fame in Cooperstown, New York. Thank you, thank you, thank you, CeCe Sabathia. We're taking the mantle after Mudcat's death and assuming ownership of the rich tradition and history that the Black Aces represent. So, with 14 Black Aces in the book, we just have one left to excel. One more time, let's load up this BKP time travel to you. 
And let's head back to Florida one more time. This time we're going to the northwest side of the peninsula to Tampa Bay 2002 where Southwall David Price is about to wrap up a fantastic 25-5 Cy Young Award winning season with a scintillating 2.56 ERA. Price was the first overall pick in the 2007 Amateur Draft. He pitched a few innings in the farm in 2008. And by 2009, the lefty had established himself a spot in the Rays rotation. And he would be spending the next five years dominating AL lineups. He wound up throwing 1,143 and two-thirds innings of baseball in Tampa with a 3.18 ERA. He wins the 2012 Cy Young Award with his leap into the Black Aces. And he makes the all-star team four times. He leads the race in the playoffs of 2010, 11, and 12. Eventually, he would become an elite arm free agent, and the Rays would let him go to the market. The Rays, reading the tea leaves and realizing they were going to lose the ace, they traded him to Detroit, where he joined a, rota- a rotation that already had Max Scherzer and Justin Verlander. In 2014, the Tigers would be swept in the division series. Uh, by the Baltimore Orioles. The Tigers fell out of contention in 2015, so they traded Price to Toronto, where he played for a year. And before the 2016 season, he signs a massive seven-year, $217 million deal with the Boston Red Sox, where he would lead the Sox to the 2018 World Series title. At 13 and 230 in his pitch in that 2018 Fall Classic, Price was dominant, posting a 1.98 ERA. Price last pitch for the Dodgers, and a 37-year-old left-handed pitcher is unofficially retired currently. And folks, I gotta be honest, after looking at David's numbers, he is a guy that is significantly better than my personal eye test. His 40.3 war is the fourth best among the uh, black aces, behind only Gibby, Fergie, and CeCe. His 8.7 strikeouts per nine is the best among his brothers. 23.6 of all his putouts he accumulated came from the strikeout, and that's also number one in the group. His 3.63 runs allowed per nine is third best behind JR and Gibby, who was at the top with an average of 3.23. His slash against was 238, 291, 377, which is fourth stingiest slash against behind JR, Gibson, and Al Downing. His career record of 157 and 82, it gives him uh, winning the, the best winning percentage of the crew, 657. And the second best winning percentage is Doc Gooden at 634. Third best fifth in the group at 3.39. Second best ERA plus of 123 behind Gibby at 127. 1.16 whip is the second best to only Fergie's 1.14. And his 3.32 ERA is the fourth best of the Black Aces behind Bob Gibson's 2.91. J.R. Richards 3.15. Al Downing's 3.22. And Vida Blue at 3.27. Four all-star appearances. 2012 AL Cy Young Award winner. And that, it, I mean, I just never realized really how good his numbers really look. David Price's numbers really surprised me this week. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, seam heads of all ages, this 
is the story of the Black Aces. Boy, oh boy, that went deep. But I, I covered my agenda here. I, I feel like, uh, you know, I feel like I, I did. I, I covered what I what I set out to do. Thanks for hanging in there with me. I hope you enjoyed the Black Aces story this week. And I'll try to be better next week. Now, before I roll this blunt bell, there are three guys that I believe we should keep an eye on in relation to the next era of Black Aces. I got three guys on my radar right now. And I'm expecting at least one of them to eventually join this exclusive club. I'm looking at Tristan McKenzie on the Cleveland Guardians. He's had some injuries this year, but that kid is lights out when he is on. And let's not forget, he plays for that pitching factory that sits in Cleveland. I like his chances a lot if he's given the opportunity, so he's number one. The second guy I want to mention is Nationals pitcher Josiah Gray. This kid has it. He handled my beloved Orioles lineup this year, and he has definitely a brother on my radar, on the rise. Keep an eye on this kid. He's got a real chance of joining this exclusive fraternity. And last but not least, I mean, you know, Hunter Green for the Reds, which, by the way, how exciting have the Reds become in the last three weeks? Unfortunately, Cincinnati, it looks like these kids are making David Bell look halfway credible as a manager. They, they may have saved his job. I honestly didn't think he was going to make the year unscathed. But, yeah, I'm digging watching the Reds these days. And Hunter Green, he just needs to harness all that hell horsepower he has under the hood. And I expect him to go home where all of his brothers will be waiting. And, you know, that's the Black Aces, folks. Backwards K Pod is available on all podcast platforms, wherever you listen to your shows. You can visit my website, diamondsnakejake.poppy.com to hear this or any of the other shows I have in my always expanding vaults of archives. I fucking love you guys. And I'll never charge you for the baseball content here, I promise. No Patreon, no Twitch, no play-to-play horseshit. I'm just going to roll up my sleeves and keep coming through every Tuesday with that free baseball smoke. You don't want that smoke. And I'm going to keep it consistent like Jolt and Joe, baby. So, with the Black Aces getting smaller and smaller in my rearview mirror, with every passing second, I now turn my steely eye glaze upon our baseball hydra, and I chop <laughs> the head off that beast, only to see two more baseball topics appear in its place. Next week, we're going to head out to the Berg for a throwback stadium investigation into one of baseball's forgotten cathedrals, Forbes Field, former home of the Pittsburgh Pirates. But look, that's another story for another pod here at Backwards K-Pod, where we collect ball players and their stories. Drink Budweiser, folks, preferably lots of it. But drink and drive responsibly, of course. Support the grassroots sponsor that supports your grassroots baseball podcast show, CrawfishHandCleaner.com. No most smelly hands. Laparos Hand Cleaner. And it's just a fantastic invention by my former Navy shipmate. Check that out and support the LTBPN team. If you want to drop me a line, you can go to backwardskpod at gmail.com. Our Twitter handle is 
back underscore K underscore podcast. You can find my Twitter handle, my personal line at JRobbie1. That's J R O B B I E and the number one. Or you can always find me chilling, hanging out with the crew. And the greatest baseball book, baseball page in the book. The Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network. Answer the questions, come on in, and let's get crazy, folks. I got 99 problems, but this pod ain't one, folks. Thank you so much for stopping by, building sandcastles in my sandbox this week. Let's all do our best to keep this game's tradition and history sacred to pass down to generations who come after us. It's the most beautiful game in the world. Nothing like it. Parents, if you see your kid sitting on the couch, got the TV remote in one hand and their noses in the phone, by all means, take him or her outside and play a game of catch. Thank y'all for coming out. God bless and win the day. And like my boy Shay Hillebrand told me in our one-on-one sparring session last year, you can find that in the archives, by the way. You go to hell, Andy Pettit. See you next week, you semen freaks. Peace.